It's Wednesday, the 4th of December, and this is the Monocle Minute. Today, inside Samjion, North Korea's new city that promises to be a socialist utopia. If they couldn't get the building materials because of sanctions, and they also said they've used a lot of their own materials, how long is it going to be before the tiles start to fall off the roof, before the plaster peels off the walls? We'll hear from Britain's former ambassador to Pyongyang, John Everard. Plus, New Zealand moves to block foreign meddling in its politics. New York tips two new mayors for bikes and pedestrians. And Jamie Waters considers why a thriving food culture is about a lot more than Michelin stars and fine dining. I'm Ben Ryland in London. The Monocle Minute starts now. North Korea is celebrating the completion of its newest city, Kim Jong-un says that Samjion is both a socialist utopia and the epitome of modern civilization. John Everard was Britain's ambassador to North Korea. It was built largely to poke the Americans in the eye effectively. I mean, the Americans have been trying to impose economic sanctions on North Korea for many years now in response to the nuclear program. And this is Kim Jong-un's way of saying that, never mind economic sanctions, I can go and build an entire new city. Yeah, sucks to you. It was built also because it's right on the slopes of the sacred mountain, Mount Pekdu, where, according to the North Korean orthodoxy, Kim Jong-un's father, Kim Jong-il, was born. Bourgeois historians suggest that this is actually a massive lie, but let's not get into that just now. Uh, So that, in a sense, he was building the city to bolster his own family myth. The ski resort has been there for a while and uh, nobody's been there, rather very, very few. It's been a huge white elephant. There are basic questions about this. like, who's going to live there? And Sanjiong is sort of in the middle of nowhere, halfway up a mountain. Very snowy at this time of year, as you can see from all the pictures. Uh, not a lot of industry. Uh, it turns out that some of uh, Kim Jong-un's entourage went also to look at the blueberry drink factory of Sanjiwon, which must have been a laugh a minute. But apart from that, uh, there's, there's not a lot of employment there, uh, a few jobs at the ski resort, I guess, and you know, it's supposed to house to house 4,000 families. Really? What families? Who's going to go there? Are foreign journalists going to go there? I suspect that for a little while it will be a great regime show-off. But there are worrying uh, signs, even in the official communiques. Uh, this was built late because the uh, North Koreans couldn't get building materials because of sanctions. Um, If they couldn't get the building materials because of sanctions, and they also said they've used a lot of their own materials, how long is it going to be before the tiles start to fall off the roof, before the plaster peels off the walls? Do the lifts in those tower blocks actually work? Has anybody put in a power supply? Power cuts are endemic, even in Pyongyang. Uh, how much electricity is there going to be for Sanjiwon? I'm not so sure it's going to be that comfortable a place to live, and I suspect that in a few years' time, the regime will be carefully keeping foreign journalists out. To New Zealand now, where new rules are in place to protect the country from foreign meddling. It seems even far-flung nations with robust democracies can fall victim to foreign election interference. This was the case in New Zealand during the 2017 general elections, when the National Party received $150,000 New Zealand dollars from the Chinese horse-racing billionaire Lang Lin, who funneled the donation through a local horse industry group in an attempt to avoid suspicion. Lin's motivation was reportedly to help a friend, MP Todd McClay, 
who he met during a G20 summit in Beijing, rather than to gain any personal benefit. To avoid a repeat, the Kiwi government is taking precautionary measures ahead of next year's poll by capping all foreign donations at 50 New Zealand dollars. Whether the new rules will succeed in plugging all the loopholes remains to be seen. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, who is seeking a second term, has a well-established global profile. Toppling her could be a goal for domestic opposition groups and foreign influences too. New York is set to get not one, but two new mayors. But Bill de Blasio needn't be worried. The two new roles, informally titled Bike Mayor and Pedestrian Mayor, are intended to help boost mobility in the city, outside of cars and subways. Carlotta Rabello is the producer of Monocle's weekly programme, The Urbanist. Carlotta, what's the reasoning behind this new idea? Hi, Ben. So this is um, an idea that's being proposed by two councilmen uh, of New York City Council. And the idea is to try to accelerate the city's efforts to improve safety on the streets. You know, this has been quite um, a dark year for New York uh, cyclists. Uh, so far, we're up to 28 deaths on uh, its streets, so not even talking about injuries or even car accidents. Um, And New York has been experimenting with ways to improve that safety for a while. Most famously over the past couple of weeks has been the ban on 14th Street in Manhattan, which um, has been implemented to ban all cars. Uh, So now it's what they call a busway. Often when we talk about how to change the transportation and mobility side of things in cities, one thing that people really don't factor in is pedestrians. We all talk about, you know, access to metro, access to buses, protected bike lanes. But there is another side of this equation, which is people that much rather walk or instead of taking a short trip by car, they they would do that and increasing that sidewalk too. Bicycle mayors are something that a lot of other cities in the world have adapted over the past five years or so. And while in the beginning was kind of a activist-led effort to encourage city halls to create an office uh, for cycling uh, within city hall, now it clearly um, is playing a bigger role in a whole this whole mobility strategy um, across city halls uh, across the world. Uh, Carlotta, we have spoken on this program before about how when it comes to better bike and pedestrian infrastructure, cities often tend to think quite small, too small. Uh, some will inevitably look at this as more of a gesture than a practical step forward. What's your take? Will it be more than just a gesture? Everything needs to start as a gesture. You know, change, especially significant change in cities, first doesn't happen overnight. And sometimes the symbolism is halfway there. It doesn't happen overnight. But it shows that the city is committed to changing that, even if it's just changing in the beginning in terms of how it's seen around the world. Reputation goes a long way to how a city is perceived. There's a reason why, you know, no one questions cycling in cities like Copenhagen or Amsterdam. But it has been hard work for decades to get to this point. You know, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. Literally, use the modes of transport that are already existing in your city and just make them accessible to everyone. Well said. Carlotta Rebello, thank you very much. And finally today, Monocle's Jamie Waters considers why a thriving food culture demands much more than a few good restaurants. Last week, a friend who recently moved to Copenhagen told me he doesn't think there's a particularly good food culture in the Danish capital. I was shocked. What about Noma, foraging, Smurbrod and all the brilliant bakeries? Yes, he conceded. You can certainly go out and eat very well, but there's a dearth of good supermarkets or corner stores stocked with quality produce, so when it comes to cooking at home, it's tough to feel inspired. 
Despite the relatively recent food revolution led by Denmark's René Redzepi, it seems that the culture of eating well is still working its way down to a grassroots cooking level. What makes a foodie city? We tend to think of it as being a place with an abundance of glamorous restaurants and slick cafes. But what about the other aspect of eating? The part that pays less attention to Michelin stars and more to what is being cooked inside homes. By this metric, any Italian city excels, as do many in France. Australia does pretty well too. So how does a place become a hub for stellar home cooking? Perhaps a series of accessible cookbooks that go viral would offer a spark. But as I'm sure any good cook would tell you, and I say this as someone who cannot cook, it has to start with inspiring ingredients. A great little supermarket chain focused on fresh produce could do wonders. I'm working on my new business pitch and planning a move to Denmark ASAP. Jamie Waters there, who might not be king of the kitchen, but he can dial a pizza better than anyone. That's all in today's program. You can read and subscribe to our daily email bulletin at our website, monocle.com. I'm Ben Ryland. The Monocle Minute returns on Thursday. Thursday.